turn to the book of Acts. Chapter 15, our text this morning will be the last section of chapter 15. After our short break last week, we are back with the Apostle Paul. And so if you would now please hear the word of the living and true God. It is alive, dividing under, asunder, soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And it is completely without error. Acts, chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's now ask for the Lord's blessing on his most holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given to us Your Word. And that Your Word is designed to teach us and to draw us closer to Jesus Christ. Not simply to tell us the things that we would like to hear. We ask, O Lord, that You would use even a passage as we have before us this morning to remind us that You are sovereign. And that we have a need, oh, how great of a need, for a Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered about the purpose of conflict? You know, we see conflict around us and we wonder why the Lord doesn't rein this in. We look at newspaper articles and and television reports and we see things like this very day, A vote occurring in Africa, in the country of Sudan. And everyone is discussing how much bloodshed will be a result of that. Not whether there will be or won't be, but how much. And we wonder, why is there such conflict and war in the world? Why is there such hurt? Perhaps you also had opportunity to hear some news closer to home. An attack upon a congresswoman a judge and her staff. And we wonder, why do we have this kind of conflict? Because this doesn't even seem to make sense. Everything that this we've, become, we've begun to learn about this shooter is that, to play it mildly, he's insane. There seems no purpose at all. YouTube postings about literacy rates and governmental programs and And he attacks a congresswoman. And we wonder, why this kind of conflict? Perhaps 
you see conflict in your own home. Perhaps you wonder why there is tension between parents and children, between siblings. Perhaps even the youngest among us wonder why brothers and sisters always need to fight. Perhaps you said to mom and dad, I don't know why, I don't, I don't like fighting. I don't like being punished. I don't like what happens. But it's still there. Well, this morning we're going to see that conflict is really a result of sin. Not just the sin that other people have out there who don't know about Jesus and who aren't ready to obey their Bibles. Conflict happens because of sin that happens in here to people who know their Bibles very well, and to people who have given their lives for Jesus. But we're also going to see that by God's grace, that God not only works in spite of conflict, over conflict, but He also works through conflict, using conflict to bring about His will. And so I'd like us to look at this text, thinking about it in terms of time frame. First, we will see a present that is marked by conflict. And then we will see that this is the case because there is a past that is marked by mistakes. And finally, we will see to our wonder and awe that there is a future marked by grace. A present marked by conflict, a past marked by mistakes, and a future marked by grace. Well, look with me, if you would, at the beginning of our text, of chapter 15, verse 36. We see here a little bit of a magic formula for Luke. You may not notice it, but we'll see it more. Luke says, and after some days. Now, this is Luke's clue that he is beginning a new section. If we had an outline Bible, this would be where second missionary journey would begin and first missionary journey would end. Well, it's actually kind of a transition bridge, but you get the point. Luke wants us to see that something new is happening. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and go see the brothers at those churches. I'm concerned how they're doing. I want to hear the reports because, you know, back then they didn't have the Internet. They didn't even have postal mail, really. So you couldn't get reports on what was going on at various churches. We take that for granted. And so Paul says, let's go see how they're doing. Now, I want you to notice how this text starts. It starts with a desire to build on success. The first missionary journey was nearly an unqualified success. The only difficulties really were in the wounds and the bruises that Paul and his company suffered. But churches were founded. Cities had the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ's grace. And so they're building on the success of that first journey. They also want to take the success of the Council of Jerusalem that we looked at a few weeks ago. How the council had stood for the gospel of grace and had welcomed the Gentiles in and how they had laid forth the lack of requirements to believe in Jesus. That you didn't need to be circumcised. You didn't need to keep the law. This was cause for great rejoicing. And so Paul is ready to go out and to do more work in these places. 
This reminds us that this conflict that we are going to see is very untimely. Have you ever had untimely conflict? Maybe you've had some words at a wedding rehearsal. Or maybe better yet, you've had a knockdown, drag out fight on somebody's birthday. Or maybe, this is probably again one of these just theoretical things. It never happens to any of you or us. Maybe you have a difficulty or shouting words as you're trying to get out the door to go to church. It's untimely, right? Perhaps you've even said, I can't deal with this now. We've got to go to church. We've got to listen to God and pray. Would you come on? It's conflict. It's untimely. But you see, it's untimely here also because the churches need to be visited. It has been roughly Luke's sometime, is about 14 or 15 months since Luke and Barnabas were out in the churches in Asia Minor. We have since had them come off the field. There was the Council of Jerusalem, and then there was the winter. And if you think it's cold here, you don't go anywhere when your main garments are sandals and a rope. You stay in town during winter. And then when the spring comes, that's the time for traveling. You get that itch of spring, and Paul says, with a spring in his step, come on, Barnabas, let's go and visit the churches. Paul was probably concerned, because maybe, just maybe, some of the Judaizers had crossed their fingers in that vote at Jerusalem. And maybe they were getting out a week before him, saying, oh, you don't need to listen to this council and Paul and Barnabas and these others. I know that we, someone was sent out, but really... We've had a change of mind. So Paul wants to make sure that nothing will happen from that aspect. And then, as you know, just as well as Paul does, a lot can happen in a church in a year, can't it? So Paul wants to go out and see them. Now, there's also, we can't forget, there is agreement by Paul and Barnabas to go out. It's unspoken, but when Paul says... You know, I've got an idea. Let's go visit the churches. You can imagine Barnabas, the son of encouragement, saying, that's great. I'll pack the bags. When do you want to leave? What a good idea, Paul. You see, he's in basic agreement with what to be done. There's actually, you can't see it clearly here in the English, but there is an intensity in Paul's request. Little small words in the Greek that Paul is not just saying, oh, let's go visit the churches. We've got nothing better to do. I'm so bored. No, he says, come on. Let's go. Let's visit the churches. So there's an intensity here. There's a new challenge that is before Paul and Barnabas. You see, Paul knows that he cannot just rest on the status quo. That's true today, too, you know. You know, we are comfortable. We have a beautiful building. We have many of the chairs filled. We have missionaries that we support and love. We have activities and programs. But we are not to sit on the status quo, whether as a church or as an individual. Now is a year to read through the Bible in a year again, even if you already have. If you've only gotten halfway through, now's the year to read through it this year. Now's the year to maybe take up some systematic theology, to study a subject. Now is the year to memorize some scripture, memorize some catechism questions. Paul and Barnabas both know this, and so this makes the conflict untimely, but it's also unwelcome. 
It's not something that they were looking forward to. You see, Barnabas says, yes, let's go. And by the way, let's take Mark. And you can almost visualize Paul's face drop. Mark. Really? I don't think so. And Barnabas would say, no. I think we should, I think we should take Mark. Paul would say, no. I mean it really. We shouldn't take Mark. And Barnabas would, why not? Mark could be a help. Mark is my cousin. He's family. I could take care of him. We learn this from Paul's letter to the Colossians, that Mark is related to Barnabas. We also might know that Mary, his mother, is a provider for the church in Jerusalem. When Peter was getting out of prison, they were meeting in Mary's house. Mary was someone who fought for the kingdom of God. And you can almost imagine Mary pulling Barnabas aside during the visit to Jerusalem to say, like any good Jewish mother, Barnabas, could you do something with Mark? Come on, take him with you. I've talked with him. He'll be good. Trust me. I so would love to see him working for Jesus. Yes, Aunt Mary. Yes, Aunt Mary. I'll see what I can do. So there's a family tie here. Those of you that are from the South know about family ties, right? And Barnabas is interested in seeing Mark get a second chance. And so he begins to to probe and to ask, and Paul begins to to push back. And we see here that there are arguments on both sides. The the language here is it's not a one-time request. It's a debate. It's a back and a forth. It's a back and a forth that heats up. There is a sharp disagreement here. There is a disagreement that is painful. Emotions start to get engaged. Paul might believe that this is a betrayal of Jesus Christ because after all, Mark left the work. He betrayed not only you and me, Barnabas. He betrayed the work. He betrayed Jesus. Why would I take him on a dangerous mission? Barnabas might say, Paul, doesn't everyone deserve a second chance? He might even say, when no one would stick up for you, Paul, who stuck up for you in Jerusalem? Who said that you should be able to speak to the apostles? I did. Am I such a bad judge of character? He deserves a second chance. And you can imagine this getting heated and back and forth and back and forth. We might ask ourselves, Is all of this argument really worth that much force? Is this really that critical of an issue? But you see, it's a conflict that begins with personalities and grows into a principial issue. And there's something about this conflict here that makes us very uncomfortable. Who's to blame? We don't know. Do you notice Luke doesn't take sides? They have been debating this in the church for centuries. And we still don't know who's at fault. Calvin is perhaps a master on this. Calvin, at one point you'll read him, you're sure that Paul's to blame. A paragraph later, you're sure Barnabas is to blame. You see, Luke puts this intentionally in front of us to show us the conflict, but he's not interested in showing us who's right or who's won. 
And if we think about it, when we have conflict, that's really all we care about, isn't it? Even when we're not involved in the conflict, we want to know who won, who came out on the upper side, who was right, which way should we follow. But that's not the way the Bible deals with conflict here. It's actually unresolved. And that makes us, I think, very uncomfortable. Well, where does this conflict come from? It seems to arise very quickly. It seems to arise almost over nothing. One person in a missionary party. It's not about where they should go or what they should preach or even when they should go. I think that we see here that at roots of this conflict are the people involved and their past and their sins. And so we see here a past that is marked by mistakes. First, we see John Mark. Mark and his fear. And then we see Barnabas and Barnabas and his compromise. And then finally, we see Paul and his zeal. You see, all of these things, all of these parts of their personalities come to play into this conflict. The first thing that we see is is Mark's fear. And it's very obvious, it's hard to miss. Paul says that he thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, sometimes, not all the times, it's helpful to read some of these paraphrased translations. These translations are not really translations. They're more commentaries. Because, you see, sometimes we transfer things from Greek into English a little bit formally. Paul thought it not best. Several of you chuckled a few weeks ago when I made some uh, imaginative comments about family conversation and I did it in kind of a very high-minded fashion. That's what the text is doing here. Actually, Paul is insisting. He thinks it isn't a good thing and therefore he is insisting that they not take Mark. And why? Because Mark had withdrawn from them. Do you know what Mark is? Mark's a quitter. That's what the message calls him. The old cotton patch version calls him one who left them holding the bag. The word that we get from this word for withdrawn is apostasy. It's the same word. You see, Mark quit on them. He quit on the mission and he quit on Jesus because he was afraid. We're not really sure what he was afraid of or what was going on. But you see, Mark was timid and cautious by nature, and he allowed that to get the best of him. He didn't take it to the Lord, and so at a crucial moment, he leaves. But at the same time, before we beat too much up on Mark, we need to remember that this is only one fault. It's not the end of his life. He was untried, untested, a young man going out on the mission field. Could you imagine going out with Paul and being run out from city to city and seeing Paul get stoned and maybe getting seasick and everything else that would go on? He was afraid. He was perhaps like one of these soldiers that you see in movies, or perhaps you even know some, who the first time they get out on the field, they hide in their foxhole, or they run for the back lines. And then by the end of the story... They've come to realize that they need to stand by their buddies. They need to do their job. And they're amongst the firmest on the front line. That's what Mark will be like. We'll see that in a minute. But for now, 
Mark is cowardly and afraid. He is untested. He is untried. But he does desire to serve the Lord. There is a repentance in Mark because, after all, he wants to go on this journey. Now, maybe mom pushed him a bit. Maybe cousin Barnabas tried to encourage him as only cousin Barnabas can. But Mark is turning from sin and turning toward Jesus. Maybe you are afraid at times, like Mark. Maybe you think that you can't ever admit that. That if you tell the pastor, or the elders, or the deacons, or the leaders, or your wife, or your husband, or your kids, that they will just write you off as weak, not worth anything. Well, I guess we can't use him anymore. But you see, that's not how the Bible works. That's not how God uses people. God uses weak vessels like Mark. He uses broken vessels like Paul to bring about his will. Mark is afraid. And this fear makes it difficult in the midst of the conflict. But Barnabas has his own problems as well. Barnabas has a problem with compromising. No, I don't mean here that he wants to take Mark. I mean the passage that we thought about a few weeks ago in Galatians chapter 2. You remember one of the things that got Paul so worked up about circumcision was that Peter had come to Antioch and he refused to eat with the Gentiles. He sat by someone else and you can almost hear the pain in Paul's voice as he says, even Barnabas was drawn astray. And perhaps that's going through Paul's mind. Barnabas, are you going to quit on me too? Are you going to compromise again? Are we going to take Mark and the two of you going to tag team me on this circumcision issue? You see, Barnabas, like everyone else, son of encouragement that he is, has his own sin and his own past. And that makes this difficult. And we see here that Something that is so often true in the church, something that you need to think about for yourself. This is a wonderful example of how our strengths can become our weaknesses. What's Barnabas' strength? He's an encouragement. He's a second chance guy. He's a think the best of other people guy. And so he applies all of those things to Mark and quite frankly, does it give much thought at all to the danger of bringing someone along who's not fully on board? Or the difficulties that they had? You see, his strengths bleed over into weakness. And this is true, I dare say, of almost all of us. The strengths that we have, if overplayed, can lead to weakness. But don't think that Barnabas is an old softy because he can mix it up as well as anybody else. This sharp disagreement here has the, the connotation of being irritated, of being exasperated. You can almost imagine Barnabas frustrated. Have you ever gotten like that where you can't get words out of your mouth because someone exasperates you, frustrates you so much by their inability to hear your arguments and to be convinced? And you say to yourself, I've just got to leave the room now. You're not listening at all to me. That's what Barnabas is feeling right now. He's exasperated and irritated. Maybe you've become frustrated with others. 
Something that's so obvious that needs to be done and they can't see it. Something so obvious to be done in the home and you don't know why the others don't see it. Right, kids? You can't understand why your parents don't see the wisdom in letting you play on the computer. It's, it's an educational instrument, isn't it? Well, maybe not if I'm playing games, but... And parents, you can't understand why your children don't get the wisdom of cleaning their room or of going to bed on time or of eating healthily. You just don't understand it. You become exasperated. That could be a cause of conflict. But the third person here in the mix really mixes it up. It's Paul. Now, Paul's not afraid. Paul's not a compromiser. We know that. Paul's personality is that Paul is zealous. If we didn't already have in the Bible Simon the Zealot, we would have to have Paul the Zealot. Because everything that Paul does is pedal to the metal, zero to sixty, get out of my way, here I come. Right? Whether he's a Pharisee, he's persecuting everybody he can find. Men, women, children, doesn't matter. Stephen wants to say something, he'll come right in and argue and mix it up with him. And if he can't win the argument, he'll get Stephen stoned. Paul becomes converted by God's grace. Someone wants to sit at another table that could make it seem like the gospel's at stake. And Paul is all over him. Right? This is Paul's personality. And so Paul doesn't really, I think, work Barnabas in this situation. It's not very smooth. You can almost imagine, well, Paul, I think we should take Mark with us. Maybe Paul's reading. No. No, I said no. No. Right? It's a point-blank refusal. There's no discussion. Well, maybe we can take him part way. Maybe we can help him. It's no. Not going to happen. No way, no how, nobody. Forget about it. That's Paul. That's his personality. And you see, Paul can get provoked. Paul's got a bit of a temper on him. And this sharp disagreement... Paul is provoked much in the same way that he's provoked by the idols in Athens. They stir him up. And this is a part of Paul's personality, isn't it? Paul is argumentative. Paul is authoritative. You don't brook Paul's authority. Just ask the Corinthians. He'll explain to you his authority. And you see, all of those things that we see Paul using either for wickedness as a Pharisee, or for good as an apostle, come out here in a relatively minor matter. It's another example of strengths becoming weaknesses. We absolutely should be thankful that Paul insists on his authority as an apostle to the churches. We absolutely should be thankful, all of us Gentiles, for Paul insisting that circumcision was not necessary to be saved. But I'm not so sure we need to be so thankful that Paul is so insistent and so unmovable about one man on a missionary journey. You see, there are gray areas here, even in the Bible. We don't know who's wrong. It's not really a moral issue. It's not really a biblical command issue. 
perhaps your challenge, your temptation is not to be afraid like Mark, not to overcompromise like Barnabas, but to get annoyed with people like Paul. That will bring conflict. Perhaps you have a past that is marked by that. Perhaps you have a marriage that is marked by that. And you wonder how you will ever come together because so often you fight and are annoyed with one another. But you see, God works through that. Even as He works through this conflict, God overcomes by His grace our fear, our compromise, and even our annoyance. God overcomes these things. Because, you see, we may have a present that is marked by conflict. We may have a past that is stained by mistakes. But if you are a child of the living God, if you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope and Savior, then you have a future that is marked by grace. Because, you see, what happens here is something very interesting. They have this sharp disagreement. It's so sharp that they separate from one another. I mean, can you imagine this? If anyone, if anyone could have handled conflict, it's Paul and Barnabas. They had worked together. They had suffered together. They had been persecuted together. They were of one mind theologically. They had the same emphasis. They had been tested. But this disagreement is so sharp that they separate. And the only thing that can save the kingdom here at this point, the only thing that can save the mission is God and His grace. Because in the midst of this conflict, God will work to preserve His kingdom. See, what God does is He brings good from evil. This sharp conflict that causes them to separate, to not work together anymore. God will bring about good from evil. Now, He doesn't always do that in ways that we can see or observe. I would not want to suggest that a Scottish revival is a good thing. You know what a Scottish revival is? A revival is when you go from 1 to 200 to 300 to 500. A Scottish revival is when you go from 100 to 80 to 50 to 25. Now, we don't look for the good in that. We don't pat ourselves on the back and say, we're so glad people are fleeing our church. They don't want to hear the gospel anymore. We're standing by the truth. We're so glad they can't get out of here fast enough. That must mean we're faithful. Now, we need to be faithful to the word, but that's not the good that God brings about. It's not the shrinking that's good. It's the persevering that's good. And do you see what happens when they separate? Paul and Mark go to Cyprus. Or excuse me, Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus, where Barnabas is from. Paul and Silas go to Syria and Cilicia, where Paul is from. Do you see how God works that out? Paul takes with him Silas. Silas, who has got the Jerusalem church good housekeeping seal of approval on his forehead. You can almost imagine, I would love to see the Judaizers come after us now. Silas, here's Silas. He's a friend of James. Let him tell you. Silas also, this is interesting, is a Roman citizen. He's the only one amongst all of these apostles and missionaries who's a Roman citizen, like Paul. 
So every place in the Bible where Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this, Silas can say, me too. So when they throw Paul in jail, as we'll see in a little bit, a few weeks, and they throw Silas in jail, it's not only Paul who says, why are you beating us untried, a Roman citizen? It's Silas that can stand right there with him. God in his providence increases Paul's ability to use this gift that he's given to him. What better place for Mark to be someone who is scared than daily around the sun of encouragement? And you see, that will have an effect on Mark's life. God brings good from evil. The work is expanded. The work is made more effective because God is at work. But God is not just working to preserve His kingdom. He also works here to preserve His people. Because you see, Barnabas and Paul separate, and we don't see Barnabas anymore in the book of Acts because Acts focuses on Paul. But we do know that Paul and Barnabas reunite later. We do know that they reunited on good terms. As a matter of fact, when Paul is trying to make a point to the church at Corinth, he says, isn't it true of me and Barnabas? You see, he uses Barnabas as an example. They come back together, so God brings them. God brings them together. How, we don't know. Just as much as we don't know who's at fault. But you see, God can preserve relationships. God can bring you closer to people you've been in conflict with. God can heal lives. That's what grace is all about. That's what the gospel does. Part and parcel of the gospel is not only deliverance from hell. It is the remaking of the Christian as a new person, a person with new desires, with new wants, with new hopes, with new love. This is what happens to Paul and Barnabas. But someone else gets helped here as well. It's Mark. I'm sure that Mark benefited from the time that he was with Barnabas. I'm sure because someone who I think is pretty level-headed and not biased says so. That someone is Paul. Paul describes Mark in three different places. The first is in the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 4 and verse 10, where he describes Mark this way. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So now... Mark is a trusted emissary to the church at Colossae. He's trusted by Paul. But then again, we see in Paul's letter to Philemon, verse 24, we hear Mark described as one of Paul's fellow workers along with Luke. So he's gone from being a trusted emissary to a fellow worker. It doesn't end there. 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes this. In his last letter, as he is suffering and knows that he is going to die, as he has seen everyone desert him, be unfaithful, as a matter of fact, as he just 
chastises a man named Demas for being unfaithful. He says in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. He says, get Mark and bring him to me. You need to bring him with me, for he is very useful to me for the ministry. Trusted envoy, fellow worker, now we might say confidant. Mark's come a long way, hasn't he? He's come that way by the grace of God. Do you have any sympathy for Mark in this conflict? He's sort of the the football being fought over. Have you ever failed? Drop down, drop the ball, shame-faced failed. And I don't mean just at doing something. I mean, have you ever had to go and knock on someone's door and apologize and say, it's all my fault? Not, I'm sorry if you think it's my fault. I'm sorry, it's all my fault. If you can empathize with Mark here, then you need to see the grace of God here with Mark. That Mark ta- that God takes someone like Mark, a weak, wannabe missionary, that's the cause of a division of seasoned veteran missionaries. And he molds Mark into not only Paul's trusted confidant, he molds Mark into an elite group. You know a lot about Mark. He wrote the second gospel. Is God gracious? That God can take a fearful loser like Mark and use him to write his word? If God can do that, what can God do in your life? What can God do in my life? How can he bless us by his grace? You see, we need not look at a past marked by mistakes. And we should not focus on a present marked by conflict. But we should always be pressing ahead to a future where we see the grace of God, where we will be molded into the image of Jesus. That is where we are headed. It's not a smooth road. It's not an easy road. The Lord shows us this in our text this morning. We will have heartache, we will have conflict, we will have disease, we will have persecutions, but we will have grace. God is good. Remind yourself of that. Not just today. Not just this week. But each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, O Lord, are wise that you are gentle, that, Lord, you treat us as we do not deserve, that you are far more patient with us than we deserve, far more supportive of us than we deserve. Lord, we thank you because that brings Jesus Christ glory. And we pray that you would equip us even now, Lord, that we would glorify Jesus. For it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.